Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. For me, it's something I'm continuously working on is to not fear money, especially growing up, we all have our different traumas and generational cycles that we're breaking. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm breaking that cycle by making money my bitch and making it work for me instead yes. of fearing money. No, you're going to work for me. I know what's up now. And now I'm going to help other people understand that money doesn't have to be scary. You can take ownership of it. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Hola, mi gente. Welcome back to another episode of Yo Quiero Dinero, the podcast. This is your host, Janice, and you're listening to episode 94, how Charlie went from stockbroker to digital nomad and entrepreneur with Charlie Stover, non-binary Latinx money coach and formerly licensed stockbroker who helps LGBTQ and BIPOC folks point hack, invest, and build wealth so they can start taking control of their money and make money their bitch. Charlie was undocumented at one point and then ended up working in the investment banking industry 
and now is pursuing their social impact MBA remotely while living on the beach in Mexico and encouraging others to live their best lives and reach their money goals. The stock market was a tool that Charlie was able to use to buy their financial freedom. And so I can't wait for you to find out more about Charlie's story and learn about how they were able to use wealth building tools to unlock their financial freedom. Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. It's such an honor to have you here. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here too. I've been admiring your podcast forever and it helped me survive my time as a broker in Indiana too. So thank you, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So why don't we start off with you introducing yourself to the audience? Yeah. So my name is Charlie Stover. I'm a non-binary, I call myself first gen-ish, a Mexican formerly undocumented immigrant. I was born in Morelia, Michoacan, immigrated to the U.S. when I was three to Washington State. And now I'm living back here in Mexico because I'm a dual citizen in Playa del Carmen, and I'm studying for my social impact MBA and doing money coaching on the side. That's amazing. Okay. So we have so many different topics to dive in, but you know, listening to the podcast that the first question I always ask to my guests is what your relationship was like with money growing up. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, I think for a lot of us, it was rough. I don't think anybody that's been on this podcast has had like an easy relationship with money, regardless no. of like the class background people come from. But yeah, it was always a struggle. I just have an interesting story. I consider myself first gen-ish because I'm like the product of a bunch of white people finding each other in Mexico. So my grandfather, my dad's side was Texan. He fought in World War II as a pilot in the Pacific. And then for some reason, just went to Mexico with a friend and found his wife, who was also a white Dutch immigrant there. And they got married and had a bunch of white, blue-eyed babies there. So that's where my last name comes from, the Johnson part. And my mom, she is the product of... German immigrants in Mexico. My grandfather on her side was born in Chiapas, Mexico, but his name was Hermann Stover. So I feel like my life was just a bunch of circumstances and people moving different places based on whims and not necessarily yeah. necessity. So uh -huh. my dad had money. We weren't wealthy or anything, but we were middle class Mexico. But he just decided when I was three to move in 1994 to random Washington State just to be as far away from family as possible. We didn't have any family or connections there at all. And we were undocumented. We just overstayed our visa, which a lot of people don't know. That's how a lot of immigrants, they have the privilege to get a visa. They just overstay. Not everybody crosses the border by foot. 
So we just stayed there, hopefully trying to get like an amnesty. But it was a stressful time because my dad wouldn't work. He had an inheritance. So we bought a house. We had assets. He wasn't good with money. He would just buy plots of land, which now that I've learned is very speculative and high risk to just buy plots of land. So we were just growing up like we were poor. My mom would look for this change in the laundry machines, but we weren't working because we were undocumented. And my dad tried preventing my mom from even getting a driver's license, kind of using that to control us, being like, no, you can't get a driver's license or we'll get it deported. Can't do this wow. or we'll get deported. So it was very tense and money was just something stressful and negative for us. It was never something I thought that that could help you or that could grow. So my mom told me never to trust financial advisors because they wanted you to invest aggressively so they can take all your money. So it was very stressful growing up. And so you actually ended up working in the financial industry, which I think is very ironic. And we're going to talk <laughs> about your career, but yeah, let's dive into that a little bit. So I have a question though. Like, so you said that your dad basically had a source of income in the sense that he was able to not work. So like, how long did that last? I mean. I would think at some point, income has to be coming from somewhere, right? Yeah. So I had that privilege of wealth transfers. So we were never starving. We would like eat really good food. My mom was cooking really delicious food. All of our neighbors would come over and my mom every time would have to explain what ensalada de nopales was, like cactus salad to all our white <laughs> neighbors. So we were never like starving or anything, but we were very careful with money because I feel like my dad felt guilty for asking his dad for more money. But my grandpa would come visit us sometimes and like in front of me, he would hand my dad money and he would hand me money. So that's just how I thought that money just fell into your lap. Unfortunately, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I can imagine that that has shaped your relationship with money in very unique ways. So let's talk about your career path and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah. And so to answer your, your question, this whole wealth transfer process lasted when I was in the States from when I was three until I was 14. My mom divorced my dad because he wasn't working. And my mom started kind of being like, your kids are basically American. They need to go to college. And my dad was like, no, they don't. They'll figure it out. And so they got divorced. My dad went back to Mexico to live with his dad. And then my mom remarried an American, very conservative Republican. But he told me that we had a friend in this country. And so we gained our citizenship. So that process lasted over 10 years. And then I finally got my green card and I was so excited. So as soon as I got my green card, I went back to Mexico basically to meet my family in Guanajuato and started working McDonald's over the summers because I was so grateful to be able to work legally. So after that first experience of you actually being able to work and feel like you're not constantly facing this threat of deportation, did you go off to college and like, what was your career path? Yeah. So my older brother's two years older than me. He's very smart. He was kind of like, I don't know if it's right or left brain, but loves math and science. I'm the opposite. I like language and culture and psychology. So he got out of our little town with like 15,000 people and studied at Cornell. And I was like, well, if he did it, then I can. So I started applying to random schools all over the country, just on a whim, hoping I'd get a scholarship. And then I ended up getting accepted to Wellesley College in Boston, to Women's College. And I just went there because it was the cheapest option. People were like, mm-hmm. which college are you going to choose? And I was like, whichever is the cheapest. <laughs> and then I got there and I was like, oh, this school is really difficult. And I'm not middle class because I have a car. 
I'm poor. <laughs> yeah. But then I just hit the ground running. My mom would always check my grades and be like, you need to get A's and everything. She'd never really explain why, just you need to do this. You need to go to mm -hmm. college. Not much more than that, but that was enough motivation for me, you know, to <laughs> like, okay, I'll do whatever. So it was just challenging coming from a tiny town with one high school to an elite college. So I had to go seek out help from tutors. And French was the easiest class for me because my Spanish could help me with French. So I ended up majoring in that easily mm -hmm. and then studied women's studies and then graduated with the idea of becoming a teacher because I realized that just because of family circumstances, I was lucky to graduate from college without debt because of those random wealth transfers and because mm -hmm. I was always watching my money and took advantage of being able to work once I became legal. So you were working basically throughout college? Yeah, I was working in a study abroad office and in the French department. Yeah. Okay. And so after graduation, where did your career path take you? So in college, my favorite organization I was a part of was NESCLA, which was the Latinx Students Organization, which basically showed me about my culture because the only thing I grew up with regarding my culture was speaking Spanish and the food. I didn't know that there were different dances like salsa and bachata and reggaeton that had their different dance moves. So I just feel like I learned what Latinidad and all of its facets meant. So going to school in the North and living in the North, I was like, I want to be where a lot of Latinos are. So I have to explain myself. So I moved to San Antonio, Texas and worked in a public high school in the South Side with City or San Antonio. And I'm barely going to use my AmeriCorps scholarship this year to pay some of my costs for my MBA. So that was about seven or eight years ago. So mm -hmm. then I was like, I really don't fit in here. Latinx folks here don't really speak Spanish because they're multi-generational. Mm -hmm. Tejanos and me speaking Spanish as a white person is kind of my way to prove that I'm Latinx. So mm -hmm. I went back to Boston and taught for a year. And then I did the Peace Corps in Nicaragua because I always felt like I wanted to get international teaching experience. So I continued to teach, but then started losing interest and started travel blogging while I was in Nicaragua because the class was always canceled because it was raining, because it was like Semana Santa. So <laughs> all the excuses. So you um, left your career and you went backpacking across Latin America. So I taught for two years in Nicaragua and then I came back and worked as a tour guide. And in okay. the off season, I backpacked for six months, starting in Colombia and then did Argentina, Uruguay, and then back to Mexico and Chile, and then back to Mexico. Yeah. Amazing. And so during this time, is this when you started discovering financial literacy? Like, where did that connection come from for you? Yeah. So the first where it clicked about the power of just investing and letting your money compound and work for you was when I was in D.C., after I came back from Peace Corps, I thought I'd get a cushy government job, but I moved there the week after Trump was inaugurated and there was a hiring freeze. So getting a cushy federal job was not in the picture for me. So I really had to hustle to pay the rent because DC is expensive. I moved in the house with like five other roommates outside of town. It was like 700 a month, biking everywhere, just hustling, dog sitting, working different side jobs, tour guiding. And then I met up with a former college classmate who I was dog sitting for and she worked at Schwab and she invited me just to come chat about money because I kept hearing about Roth IRAs, Roth IRAs from my former white classmates. And I was like, I guess I should start investing for retirement because none of these dog sitting kids are giving me any of that. So I need to do this myself. 
And she really helped me show how much I could lose out if I didn't just start now. It didn't matter how much I started with. I just needed to start now so that time would be on my side. And then her being able to do that gave me the confidence to go to Latin America for six months instead of worrying about working a job because I was very good about budgeting. And I started listening to the Susie Orman podcast and the Paula Pant Afford Anything podcast. And I just loved how people she didn't even know would call her and ask very personal things about getting a divorce or beneficiaries or how much money people should put down for down payment for a house. And I'd never heard people talk about these things before. So I was like, I want to do this because you're basically being like a therapist and you're helping people through the avenue that is money. Yeah. And so you became a stockbroker for Charles Schwab. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. Yeah, I told my friend, I thanked her when I was in Mexico. I was in Campeche. I remember I was in Campeche just thinking about her and I said, I want to thank you so much and so grateful for you inspiring me to just start a robo-advisor account that's doing the work for me. I had a small brokerage account and a Roth IRA. And then she said, well, you should just come work for Schwab. So even when I was in Mexico, I was interviewing with them. And it was a very intensive process, even though I was entry level and had no finance experience. They really just cared about my determination and the fact that I'm okay with moving to places that not everybody wants to move to. Like Nicaragua, they were like, why are you coming to Indiana? And mm -hmm. I was like, if it's worth it, I'll do it. I just want to learn and I want to help people. So why did you end up in Indiana? Is that where they're based out of? Yeah, they have a training center there and in Dallas. And I didn't really like my experience in Texas. And I'd never really lived in the Midwest. So I was like, well, let me try out 
Indiana and see how it goes. If anything, my expectations were low, but I knew I was going to learn so much and make the most of it, which I did. Got it. So tell me about what that experience is like being a stockbroker, right? Because we watch all these movies like Wolf on Wall Street and all this craziness. Like, is it really that insane or is that just like for the movies? Well, the bro culture is much more toned down because HR is a thing. Like they joke around about how they can't say this and that because HR. Yeah. So it was interesting for me. I knew I was just there temporarily. I wasn't just going to be working there the rest of my life. I was the first person in my family to really do this, but I was interested in it and just wanted to learn and eventually help people. So the environment was that of like, it just felt like we knew it was up with the stock market. No matter what happened, we had it all under control because we understood the language of money. Mm-hmm. Before the market crashed, we would all joke around like, I can't wait for the market to crash. This bull market has been lasting for 10 years. I just want stocks to to be cheaper so we can buy them. And so when the market was crashing, it felt like I was on a life raft watching the Titanic sink. Because you understood what was happening. Yeah. It's cyclical. Like it's going to happen. And people would ask me, what do you think about the stock market crash? And I said, I don't know why people are surprised that this has happened since the 1920s. And it's kind of designed to keep happening. So rich people can just keep buying stocks on the cheap and benefiting while poor people are losing out every time. Wow. So I feel like that perspective has given you a greater purpose because now you actually left your job and you're pursuing an MBA. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I didn't feel like they needed me at all. I was helping a lot of mostly middle class people with trust funds and they were very entitled and would talk down to me. And Schwab is known for having good customer service, which meant that we had to just take any BS and that really old after a while. I think I remember messaging you and saying, the only thing keeping me here is having those discussions with women of color, women who don't know what they're doing, but they want to learn because they know they need to because no one in their Mm -hmm. family has taught them these things. So I really loved those conversations. I would give them a personal email if they had any more questions. And I was like, I need to start doing this on the side because these conversations are keeping me going in this place. So in uh, March, April, around there, I started just finally applying to grad school, even though I had imposter syndrome of not feeling like I was good enough because I never really knew what my essays would be about. But this time, for sure knew what my essay would be about Mm -hmm. COVID. I got a full ride scholarship at the Heller School for Social Policy because I had done Peace Corps. And so, yeah, I was able to quit my job in the middle of a pandemic, knowing how to save for it. And moving out here in Mexico, the cost of living is so much lower. And I have time to breathe because I'm not constantly worried about paying the rent as a single person living here with no place to really fall back on. So So you're pursuing a social impact MBA. Can you tell me what Mm -hmm. that means? So we still have to take the typical MBA classes like accounting and economics, but we can also take electives. My favorite class was the assets and social policy class, which talks about things like the wealth gap and wealth transfers. And my favorite assignment was writing my asset story because it gave me the time to reflect on my many privileges, yet how I was marginalized as a trans person, formally undocumented without financial literacy, how that has held me back. So this social impact MBA, about 40% of the students are returned Peace Corps volunteers. It's composed of a lot of people like me who want to make money, but also not destroy the planet in the process and help other Mm. people while we do it. So I'm really liking it. That sounds amazing. And it sounds like something that as we 
continue to evolve, I think, as a society. I was reading recently an article that said that like ESG investing has hit like an all-time high. So mm-hmm. there is this like desire for people to invest in a way that still feels morally like they're not compromising their morals in order to make mm-hmm. money. And I love the fact that now it seems like academia is also realizing that we can have both. We can have uh, profits without putting people at the expense of that mm-hmm. and the environment and our social constructs. That sounds really awesome. So what do you hope to do with that background, with that degree? So before entering, I was ambivalent. I said, it might help me with my side hustle, my money coaching thing, learn how to monetize it, or I might work for a social impact firm, investing firm. But I have realized how ESG funds can still be greenwashed, even though a fund says that it's ESG. For example, the She Fund, S-H-E, that's mm-hmm. supposedly for gender equity. It's just Apple, Google, Microsoft stocks, but they have like gender equity in their companies. Therefore, they're designated as socially conscious fund. Mm. So that's a big problem I'm seeing just because something is labeled socially conscious. What does that mean? I think people still need to continue to be critical of that. So that's something that I want to study further as I get my requirements out of the way. Study, okay, what exactly can we do to make funds profitable yet socially conscious? But I think the more and more I get through this MBA, I'm just like, I don't want to work for anybody else. Like, we have Mm -hmm. had a lot of discussions about Black Lives Matter and the whole Starbucks fiasco about how they told two black men in Philadelphia to leave because they weren't yet paying for a drink. They're waiting for other people to come in and racial tensions at work. And how do we deal with colleagues that say racist things? And I was like, I don't want to deal with the Beckys and Karens at work. I'm busy. (laughs) I want to keep just working with marginalized folks that haven't grown up with this institutional knowledge. So that's why I've been hitting up Joy at Build With Joy. And she's been helping me a ton with building my business, especially it's winter break here. Yeah. So your ultimate goal is to become a money coach and to work with POC clients that you know, based on your experience, just are not getting the level of financial education that they need to really accomplish their Mm -hmm. goals. So what is it about that community that you're so passionate about educating? And why do you think overall, like, financial literacy should matter to people of color and marginalized communities? Because it's fun. Because I just feel like there's a level of entitlement to white people that I did not enjoy whatsoever working in the finance industry because they've passed money for generations down to each other. They haven't had to deal with housing discrimination, things like that. They know what kind of language they need to teach their kids, what kind of accounts they need to open for their kids, like 529 accounts before their kids are even born so that they can afford Mm -hmm. college. And POC don't have that. And I also feel like POC continue consistently to support me and my value and my business more than other white people who have DM'd me asking for help without payment while POC are like, can we talk? What's your rate? Cool. And then when you are paying you now. So it's just a no brainer for me, but I'm not saying I only help POC. That's what I'm focused on because that's been who I'm targeting and who comes to me consistently. Well, and it makes a lot of sense, right? Because I feel like so many of us are looking for representation for people that 
we feel like can understand us on a cultural level mm -hmm. and just really understand the nuance that it is to be a marginalized person in this country. So like, I know for a fact, when I seek out financial professionals, like I'm always looking for a woman, preferably a woman mm -hmm. of color, because that's just mm -hmm. who's going to get me. Right. <laughs> that's who I look for when I go to a therapist and I'm not even right. like a person of color. I'm just like, they get it more. <laughs> they get right. oppression. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the limiting beliefs that you have seen your clients dealing with? And like, how do you help them overcome those beliefs? So one thing I've noticed, it's not limiting, but I do like to kind of just clarify right away. I think a lot of people see things like Robin Hood that makes trading fun and it's something you can do, but it can be careful if you don't know what you're doing because the stock market isn't very volatile. And people want to come to me and right away talk about investing. But the first thing I ask them is, okay, what's your debt situation? No judgment. I'm not saying, do you have debt in a judgmental way? I'm just asking open-ended question. What is your debt situation? You don't have it? Okay, good. Oh, you have it? Okay. And I know people are uncomfortable about it, but I'm here to help in a non-judgmental way. And people say things like, I didn't know what I was doing. I got into debt. No, you just worked with what you had. You didn't have generational wealth supporting you. Don't feel guilty. You might not have somebody else there to fall back on. Don't feel guilty that you had to borrow money to pay for college, especially since wages have not kept up with inflation and the rates at which college tuition is rising. Wages are not keeping up. Retirement benefits are getting slashed more and more. People are having to Uber on the side more and more. So a living belief is just feeling not good enough, which I can definitely relate to. Yeah. Or that people came in too late. It's like, no, you're 30. You have so much time on your side. Just the fact that you're even thinking about this is so important. And I can relate to the imposter syndrome because I just invested $1,000 in Paula Pants real estate investing course. And I feel like I don't belong there because so many people there are like, oh yeah, I have three rental properties with my inheritance. I'm going to like spend $10,000 in repairs. And I'm like, how do you have all this money? Oh wait, I know exactly how, but I still deserve to be here and learn for when I do have this money. Yeah, I love that. That's such an important message. And I hear that so often too, this whole like, I started too late, it's too late for me. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, girl, you're like 30, 35 years old. If it's too late for you, it's too late for all of us. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, bury me now, dig the hole. Because if it's over, then why are we even doing this? Right? <laughs> so- yeah. I'm curious, what does financial self-care mean to you? For me, it's something I'm continuously working on is to not fear money, especially growing up. We all have our different traumas and generational cycles that we're breaking. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm breaking that cycle by making money my bitch and making it work for me instead yes. of fearing money. Now you're going to work for me. I know what's up now. And now I'm going to help other people understand that money doesn't have to be scary. You can take ownership of it. All the people I talk to are brilliant, amazing people, not just women. I've talked to men too, because women want me to help their little brothers, which I love because people are <laughs> trusting me to help their siblings out. Yesterday, I talked to a client who made a spreadsheet of different mutual funds to compare them to. And I was like, so proud of her. <laughs> you don't yeah. have to do this, but I know you want to learn. So you can do that it. That is major. Today, actually, I was reading an article on Fortune magazine that said that wealthy women of color are actually more confident investors than their white female peers. And that shook me to the core because I was like, I am not seeing that. But then again, it's like, 
Do I have a lot of wealthy women of color friends? No. So I really don't have a sampling pool to make an accurate assessment yeah. of whether or not years. this is actually happening, right? In 10 years, <laughs> thanks to your podcast, you'll know. Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> but <laughs> the data that they were presenting was that they basically surveyed like almost 1,400 women. And they're saying mm. that compared to white women, like women of color that are wealthy and they're classifying that as somebody who has at least $150,000 worth of assets to invest. Like they are more confident. They're able to make more decisions. And a lot of that actually is because they are typically the ones that are responsible for their finances in their home. Mm-hmm. Whereas white women tend to have that responsibility taken care of by their husbands. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that gave me a lot of hope. Cause I'm just like, okay, so I think there is a lot of momentum for like owning your shit when it comes to money. It just needs to be something that's more normalized in our community because obviously there's just not a ton of people that are talking openly about this and making it known that, yes, wealth comes in all shades. Yes, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about what we have. That's one thing I love about your post. You're saying, this is how much I make. I hit this milestone just so other people can see that. And it reminds me of how not talking about your salary only benefits the employer. So Mm. we need to start talking about these things. It's not hurting anybody. Same goes for me when I talk about my experience as a trans person getting top surgery and feeling rejected from my family. Now I have nothing to lose but the haters. Yeah, you just know who your people are. And you can just step into yourself knowing that your chosen family especially is there for you like they have been there for me. Mm -hmm. I love that. So what advice would you give to somebody who's ready to start getting control of their finances, maybe is thinking about investing, and they just don't know where to start? They're like freaking overwhelmed. Just listen to this podcast. (laughs) You're already one step ahead. (laughs) Keep doing this. (laughs) Listen to other, I love the Women and Money podcast. That's my jam. I don't listen to Dave Ramsey. I don't listen to the bros. No, I want to be able to relate to people. Some people hate on Susie Orman, but she has her opinions. We all have our opinions about money. I feel like I relate to her because she's gay and she also became a stockbroker late in her life at about age 30. So She's a badass. Yeah. Like, I mean, you've got to respect a woman who has come up in an industry that has every reason to not have allowed her to be successful. Yeah. And like she likes to say, she's fabulously wealthy. She lives on her island, yet she continues to do this. And she's like 70 now, but you can tell that this is what's keeping her alive is helping other people. Yeah. And she has this really cute relationship with her partner, KT. Oh, yeah. I love the two of them on the the podcast. They're so funny. My KT. (laughs) (laughs) She's so fun. (laughs) Yeah, I love her. So besides podcasts, what else would you say is good advice to get started with getting your finances in order? Investopedia helped me a lot when I was starting in the finance industry because a lot of my colleagues had studied finance, so they knew the language around it. But when they'd say things like dividends, I was like, what the hell is a dividend? I would Google it on Investopedia. If you don't know a term, just check it out on Investopedia. I feel like this language is coded and confusing on purpose to keep people out. Like a lot of your listeners probably speak a second language. This is just a third language. It's much easier for you to learn. I feel like I'm a money translator half the time. I'm like, oh, cost basis is just a fancy white middle class people word for what you paid for it. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid. Just keep reading lots of personal finance books out there. Gabby Dunn, Bad With Money, she wrote a good book about it and has good podcasts too. She's Jewish and 
bisexual. So there's just so much out there and it's getting exciting seeing all this representation. I love that. What is your money mantra? Money is energy. Money reflects people's fears, traumas, family history, goals, and dreams. So it is what you want it to be. Just don't be afraid of it. Make it be your bitch. (laughs) I love that. Literally, that's going to be my 2021 slogan. Money is your bitch. (laughs) I need that on a shirt. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I'd buy that. Yes. Charlie, this has been an amazing conversation. So for folks that want to find out more about you, work with you as a money coach, or just follow your journey, where can we find you? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at Traveler Charlie with a Y. Why? Because that's how they spell Charlie out here in Latin America. And my website is just TravelerCharlie.com. Same on Twitter. And thank you again for having this conversation. I love talking about money, especially with you. It's been awesome. Thank you. It's been an honor to have you here. And I can't wait to see how your business continues to grow and how you continue to impact this community that really needs you. So thank you so much for being an important voice in this space. Thank you. You're so needed to take care. Thank you. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of The Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, 
financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.